Hi everyone and welcome to the Worldonomics podcast brought to you by the UQES diversity team. I'm Francisco. I'm Marty. I'm Bronwyn. I'm Sharada. And I'm Joe. And each week we bring in a new guest to talk about the issues that matter. UQES would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is taking place today. We acknowledge the country as both the Turbal and Jagara nations. We pay our respects to all elders past, present and future. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fifth episode of our Career Pathways podcast, where we interview academics and professionals on current and emerging events in finance and economics, as well as broader society. I am Marty Lay, and tonight from UQES, we have Francisco, Sharada, and Bronwyn. And we are very fortunate to be joined by the head of the Structural Policy Analysis Division at the OECD, Dan Andrews. Welcome, Dan. And now before we get into the interview, are you able to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do, what you have studied, et cetera? Definitely. Thanks very much, Marty, for the generous introduction and invitation. So I'm Dan Andrews. I'm the head of structural policy division at the OECD. My job is to basically lead teams to conduct research on the drivers of productivity growth and employment growth and the role of structural policy in that process. And in turn, that evidence supplies our recommendations to countries on how they can basically implement better policies to improve people's lives. So I returned to the OECD in the middle of last year. Before that, I was a senior executive at the Australian Treasury where for two and a half years, where I formed a team that uses cutting-edge microdata and big data sources to understand the drivers of economic growth, the role of policy in that process. And obviously, once the pandemic hit, we spun that team into sort of a real-time data monitoring capacity where we would then produce essentially indexes of demand and spending in relatively finely granular neighbourhoods and industries, which we then provided briefing to to the Prime Minister and Treasurer with a very short publication lag. So what we're talking about here is weekly indexes for a week ending Friday, and then the PM would get that the following Tuesday. Before that, I was at the OECD for eight and a half years, where I was the head of productivity research. A lot of my work centers on the role of firms in the global economy, in particular, the role of the most technologically advanced firms and their ability to sort of implement and adopt new innovations, and then how that spills over to other firms in the economy. And before that, I was at the Reserve Bank of Australia for the best part of 10 years. I worked there during the global financial crisis, extremely busy time. In terms of education, I've got, I went to UQ, graduated in 2001 with a first class honours degree in economics and the University of Metal, did an arts degree. And in the mid 2000s, I went to Harvard University for, to do my graduate work. So that's sort of the, who I am, what I do. And um, really interested in talking to you guys today. Oh, it's a sense. Thank you so much. That sounds like a really inspiring career and I'm sure something that a lot of our listeners will sort of aspire to do something or similar things. So we, we sort of start our podcast off with a break the tension sort of fun question. So if you were to write a book on a non-economics topic, what genre would you write it in and why? <laughs> <laughs> I, I always find these questions actually more difficult than, than, than hardcore economics stuff. That's an interesting question. Well, I'm sort of really interested in history. Mm-hmm. So I think that it would probably be something of that bent. But more generally, I'm interested in, in the political process and how basically societies confront long-term challenges with potentially with policies that may face a lot of vested interests in the short run. And so 
I think one of the big questions for our society is how do we address things like climate change? How do we improve, you know, how do we address inequality? How do we get our, you know, economies on a more sort of sustainable footing? And as economists, we know that we need to price carbon, right? We know that there's probably a pretty strong case for investing more in education, for lifting unemployment benefits to prove match quality in labor markets and all that. Uh, and we know that it's not a good idea to have stamp duties on housing and that and all those types of things. The problem is, is that those kind of barriers are still there, right? And that's because there's vested interests that, that sustain them. So I think that I'm interested in these political economy aspects and how do we actually make progress on these longer term challenges and confront the sort of short run costs, which tend to be concentrated while, while the benefits are so I think it'd be something at the intersection of history, but also how the political process works in a way that advances human well-being. Yeah, really interesting. Is that what you studied in your arts part of your degree? Yeah, yeah. So I did a history in government. It was one of those parallel degrees, right, where you could do, I don't know if they still exist at UQ, but you did economics and arts and you got that echo slash arts after four years. And the idea being that even in an economics degree by itself, you had to do electives. And that's true of an arts degree as well. So what they just what they just did is remove that requirement so you could do it a lot quicker. That was good, that gives you good balance, right? Like economics gives you the rigor, a framework to think about the world and really good empirical skills. But an arts degree can actually teach you how to write and communicate as well. So I think they were for me, they were a good match and, and really complementary. Okay, so I have an easier question, I hope. Why did you choose to study economics originally? I think that there's a couple of reasons. So one was that I went to high school in the early 1990s recession, which was particularly nasty, and Australia had super high unemployment and and a lot of the undesirable sort of social outcomes that go with that. So I was interested in sort of how you reduce unemployment and how, what are the types of choices societies can make that firstly reduce the likelihood that you experience a recession in the first place. But then in the bad state of the world where, where the recessionary shock hits, how do you basically recover as an economy and society and alleviate that human pain? So that's the first one. The second one was that my life has been fundamentally transformed by the economic policy choices that the Australian government made during the 80s and early 90s. So in terms of opening the economy up to the world, in terms of basically adopting a floating exchange rate, in terms of choices around sort of financing of higher education. And so that's sort of been the persistent theme for me in my life. How do you actually make those hard political choices that deliver long-run benefits? And the third reason was more personal. I had an exceptional high school economics teacher who I'm still in contact with over LinkedIn. His name's Neil Mackay. I grew up on the Gold Coast. And I think that like, he was really effective in communicating the benefits of economics. And so I think that that really crystallized in my mind that that was a good choice. Yeah, so I think it'd be those three things if you were to put me on the spot. That's so interesting, Dan. I noticed that a lot of people ask why they did economics. They say, I had a great economics teacher during high school. So yeah, it's definitely it's a motivating part of it. Kind of continuing with what you were saying, do you feel like during uni, you were already tailoring your degree to have some specific outcomes like your major or electives? Yeah, yeah, I think I was relatively conscious of the choices I was making there. Like, I think that 
you know, one of the good things about UQ uh, when I was there, and I, and I presume this is still the case, is that the economics department there gave me a relatively holistic education of economics, right? So instead of spending my whole time inverting matrices, you know, it was sort of taught in a lot more intuitive way. And so I think that that helped. I was fortunate enough to also apply for a, an RBA summer cadetship in my final year of undergrad. And that sort of gave me a job at the RBA in Sydney over December, January, 99 into 2000. And then from that, I was given a scholarship by the RBA, which, which sort of, for my honest view. So I think that I was always clear that I wanted to do something, be an economist. It was just a question about where I ended up. Like my honours thesis was on, for instance, the labour market consequences of growing up in a low socioeconomic status neighbourhood. The idea there is that if you're exposed to neighbourhood conditions where maybe there's few kind of role models and that, where there's sort of adverse peer effects, that may have sort of persistent effects on your economic and social outcomes. And that's certainly what we found. So I think that like, that was always a more kind of microeconomic band for I. And when I got the RBA scholarship, I had to transform myself into a macroeconomist. And then when I went to the OECD, I went full circle, right, and started to focus on more microeconomic issues. So I think that the intent was always there to be an economist. It's just a question of what was the nature of the job I did. But the RBA is one of the best places you can go as a graduate. The training that they give you is, is second to none in my view. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. So, Dan, UQ macroeconomic subjects are slowly becoming a study of macroeconomics with microeconomic foundations. Is that how you view macroeconomics? So in terms of what I do, I try to understand what drives macroeconomic phenomenon in our economies from a micro perspective. So, for instance, most OECD countries experience a pronounced slowdown in the rate of labour productivity growth measured as GDP per hour at work, even before the, the global financial crisis. So we're talking around, say, 2004 here. So one of my big contributions has been to use cross-country firm-level data to understand what's actually underlying that global productivity slowdown at the macro level. So that's sort of like an example of how you, know, you go from macro to micro and back again. And one of the reasons you do that in the productivity space is that the idea of a representative agent doesn't make sense. So when you look at within narrowly defined industries, so let's think about something like ready-mix concrete, for instance, you've got to confront the fact that there's widespread heterogeneity in firm productivity. So like the firm at the 90th percentile of the productivity distribution is twice as productive as a firm at the 10th percentile. And they're producing exactly the same thing. So to be able to understand productivity in macroeconomic terms, you need to come to terms with that heterogeneity that exists at the micro level. And it's sort of symptomatic of a number of things. One is the fact that leading technologies don't diffuse to all firms in the economy, and that could be because of barriers to competition. There's also the problem where weaker firms can survive without improving their act, and that has a cost, right? Because low productivity firms absorb scarce skills, labor, capital, and that sort of slows down the reallocation process, which sustains productivity growth. So I think that you have to think about macroeconomics in microeconomic terms. Now, what that means in terms of inside the UQ economics department, I'm obviously less of a favor with, but certainly I think that's a reasonable thing to do. You can go that at that from a sort of theoretical perspective as well. It just depends on sort of what, what sort of aspect of macro you're interested in. 
Um, so following on from that kind of note, it used to be that we had to do like intro to micro, intro to macro, micro theory, macro theory, macro policy, micro policy, but now the policy aspect has become electives. How do you think um, this will impact future economists? Do you think it will have an impact? What are your thoughts on this? So look, that doesn't sound too different to when I was there, but like, I, I think you've got to get like a solid foundation before you can even think about going into the policy space. So it makes sense that your formative years at uni focus on sort of developing that sort of core competency and framework. And for me, then the question is where econometrics sits in that. Like as someone who hires a lot of young people in that, like my definition of an economist now for anyone who's under say 33 is obviously someone who's got the good cut, who's got like the basic theory in that, is well-versed in that, but they need to be able to use Stata, increasingly Python, right, to be able to be productive, right? Because the world is a lot more complicated now than it was 20 years ago, or even in the early 80s. Australia could make economic policy decisions based off textbook economics. You, know, you can only float the dollar once, right? So now we're at sort of at a, at a juncture where you really need to sort of get under the hood of the economy, use all that micro data to understand sort of what are the constraints on their own productivity growth or, or why, why is wage growth for young workers slowed a lot more than we would have expected. And to do that right, you've got to really have really good econometric skills and be able to sort of use those, those metric packages. So I think for me, it's like econometrics has got to be core because that allows you then to make progress on those more specific questions. So that's sort of how I think about it. You know, I do think they're starting to move towards that more like math statistic focus now with like the refocusing of degrees. So makes sense. So now, Dan, post-uni, you were fortunate enough to spend some time at the RBA, as you mentioned. And this was alongside Tom Keeley, who we had the pleasure of talking to last episode. Did you two work together day to day? And if so, what was that like? Yeah, it was. I actually spoke to Tom a few weeks ago and it was terrific to talk to him. We were very close friends at university and we then sort of went to the RBA as grads together. And so I landed in the research department at the RBA and a lot of my, so the way it works is you do 18 months, right, in your first post. So I was in the research department for actually for almost two years. And so I did some of the seminal work on why Australians spend more on housing than other countries, right? And the idea was that Housing is more costly in, in, in large cities. And Australia has a lot more of their urban population concentrated in Sydney and Melbourne than other countries. So that drives up the national average house price. So I was doing that in my formative years at the RBA, and which was a terrific start. And from memory, Tom was on the economic analysis side. So I think he might've been working in the prices, wages and labor markets division, which, which is central. They do all the inflation forecasts, which... Obviously, VA monetary policy key off. I think he might have been on the labor desk at some point. Did, did Tom talk about this, Marty? He did a little bit. I think when he talked about the RBA, he sort of went from it from a point of view different to policy and it was more on the interest rates and monetary markets and things like that. So it definitely makes sense to like what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so it sort of goes back to what I was saying before. So I always knew I wanted to be an economist, but I wasn't actually sure where. Right? So the RBA's mandate is to run an inflation target right? and try to take into account, obviously, employment as, as well on that. So 
what that means is that all the work of the RBA is geared towards understanding the macroeconomic trajectory of the of the economy over the next two years or so over the forecast horizon. So it's very natural that you then just focus on that relatively narrow set of policy issues, right? Now, if you want to go broader, then you sort of start to think about the public service and in particular the Treasury, where I spent a couple of years and like, so not only obviously the Treasury controls fiscal policy, the other modern lever of macroeconomic policy, but they then do a range of other things, spanning tax policies to competition policy, designing, making sure that our our regulations are fit for the digital age and a bunch of kind of things like that, right? So I think you got to work out, sort of develop that solid core and then sort of work out what are the policy you know, issues you're interested in. But there's no reason why after going to the RBA, you can't join Treasury as well. So I think, you know, you need to think about sort of becoming a well, well-rounded economist and having that diversity of work experiences you know, is certainly helpful on that front. Dan, during your time at the RBA, you also completed a Master of Public Administration at Harvard University. What motivated you to choose that program and how does that compare to the Master of Public Policy, which is offered at UQ? Yeah, so the reason I chose that was that, well, firstly, a friend of mine, Andrew Lee, who you might be familiar with, he's a um, Labor politician. He did his PhD at the Kennedy School of Government, and we got to know each other through the back end of of his dissertation because I helped him access some data when he came to the RBA once. And he was always a sort of a a mentor for me, and and he remains one to this day. So firstly, I I like the kind of mix of, of economics and policy. And the second thing was when I went there, I was sort of in my late 20s. So I was running out of time. I, I couldn't spend six years doing a PhD because the opportunity cost was just too high. So I felt that the best thing I could do is go to the Kennedy School, obviously develop my technical skills. I did a lot of econometrics and that, chose subjects in like the Harvard and economics department, but also had a really strong research focus. So I was able to collaborate with Andrew on some papers there. We wrote a couple of seminal papers. One was on the link between um, inequality, intergenerational social mobility. So the idea there was that if you're exposed to high levels of inequality when you're growing up, that basically stunts your life chances. That relationship was later termed the Great Gatsby Curve by the late Alan Kruger. The second thing we did there was look at the impact between top-end income inequality uh, and economic growth. So what's the relationship? A lot of the increase in in income inequality at OECD countries over recent decades has been driven by the absolute top of the distribution. So we sort of did one of the first studies looking at how that affected economic growth. So I think that, you know, there was a number of factors there, but, you know, that was, I've got to say that that was an incredible experience because, you know, not only are you developing your, your economic credentials, but the people you meet are incredible, right? From all over the world, from a diverse backgrounds as well. So, you know, I was like Josh Frydenberg, the treasurer, we were there together, right? So I've formed a lot of lasting relationships out of that. And it's also a good thing, right, for your perspective, not to hang around just economists, right? So at the Kennedy School, you had people who were social workers, you know, politicians, working for NGOs, the whole gamut. And it's a real level and it teaches you the importance of communicating economic ideas in a relatively simple and accessible manner to be able to cut through. And that becomes very important down the line for policy impact. 
so in terms of how it compares to the UQ, um, forgive me, but I wasn't aware about the UQ. So I think the main point of what we thought about that was that the, just seeing if there was a difference between public policy and public administration. Oh, if- okay. No, so in the US, the, the term public administration and public policy can be used interchangeably. The difference at Harvard is the Kennedy School has a two-year master's of public policy, and that's more designed for basically people who have just come out of university, whereas the two-year master's of public administration, you had to have at least an honours degree. You had to have at least six or seven years work experience. So that was sort of, uh, and what that meant was you got a lot more flexibility, right, in terms of how you structured your degree. So with mine, as long as I did an economic subject, a politics subject, and a management subject inside the Kennedy School, I could then do whatever else I wanted and graduate, right? Whereas the the Master of Public Policy is a lot more prescribed. You've got a set curriculum and you've only got maybe four electives in, in across four semesters, right, at most. So, so yeah, that, that's the difference. But you're still doing It's still public policy focused, right? It's just, a, it's just the terminology or the name of the degree. Yeah, right. Oh, okay. Uh, it makes sense to join this one. This was the first part of the interview with Dan Andrews. Make sure you're back in two weeks for the second half. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. We'll see you next time.